You're now listening to episode 135 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here with Mark Ritter, CEO of MBFS and New Direction Lending. Mark is an expert in all things credit union and small business lending, and the organization he leads are designed to help credit unions fund more loans to real estate investors and small business owners in their communities. In today's episode, we discuss the benefits of having a relationship and working with credit unions compared to banks when financing real estate transactions. We also discuss Mark's insights into the current lending environment for real estate investors, including interest rate and market trends, as well as the current state of the PPP loan forgiveness program and the new PPP loan program in 2021. Before we dive right into today's episode, we did want to remind everybody about our Tax Smart Real Estate Investor Facebook community. It's the one-stop shop for real estate investors to learn about tax strategies and stay up to date on all the tax law changes. With nearly 650 members and counting, there are a ton of conversations taking place right now. Join today by visiting www.facebook.com slash groups slash Tax Smart Investors or by following the link in the show notes below, or you can just search us on Facebook. I'm sure we'll pop right up. We're looking forward to seeing you in there, but for now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Sure. Thanks for having me. I am Mark Ritter, the CEO of MBFS, and we are a business lending QSO that helps credit unions and their members across the country get business lending and commercial real estate and residential investment and a wide variety of anything business related. And I've been in the credit union space about 20 years, started up a shop at in central Pennsylvania when credit union business lending was a speck in people's eye. Uh, now it's a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And for the past eight years, I've been CEO of a credit union-owned company where that's what we specialize in is helping credit unions and their members get financing directly uh, with America's credit unions. That's fantastic. You know, I've been uh, banking with a credit union my entire life. Probably weeks after I was born, I had a bank out of a credit union, still use that credit union to this day uh, and love it. So when it comes to working with a credit union on the lending aspect of it, what are the pros and cons of of working with a credit union over So one of the things is that what you just said, you know, you've had that relationship for years at a credit union. And that's one of the first things that we value is, do we have a bond and relationship with this person that we're going to go and try to help? Uh, We tend not to lend in boxes and just say, this is our world and that's it. If somebody has a good relationship with the credit union and maybe they're just starting out under the real estate investment side, we can help them grow. We deal with large investors, we deal with small investors, and we deal everything in between. The other side of it is that the credit union, you know, our money spends the same as everybody else's money. But one of the things is that And we have to do loans that we show where people can pay back. But at the credit union, it's that relationship and touch and you have contact and people that can help you through the process. 
And we've all probably been this where your bank, local bank gets merged. And every time if they get a little bit bigger, you get moved down the food chain a little bit. You know, we've all had that. At the credit union, you can have somebody you can talk to where if you want to talk to the CEO, the odds are you can. And if you want somebody to explain your loan options, you can, as opposed to just lending in a box. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you know, real estate's a relationship business and um, good to see that uh, credit unions value that relationship aspect of it. So when working with like a credit union, is there like anything special in terms of lower interest rates or less fees when you're going ahead and, and financing it? Or is it on par with the bank or how does that ask? You know, and, and one of the nice things is if for any federal credit union, by law, actually, and nothing we do can be charged a prepayment penalty. So that's kind of one of the unique things about us. And credit unions, by their nature, are, you know, they're financial cooperatives. So you're going to have, like, I, I don't want to wave a flag that says I'm always the cheapest person out there, but I always wave a flag that says I'm the fairest person out there. You know, your fees are going to be reasonable. The terms are going to be reasonable. Because if not, you could pay off the loan and walk it out the door. You know, this past year, we've seen rates plummet. Well, if you had your financing at a credit union, you could modify it without a penalty, without renegotiating all those big prepayment penalties that you see. So that's some of the advantages of us in that we have the flexibility because we're also lending our money that is it housed in deposits. We're not out there leveraging Wall Street financing or other uh, leveraging that we're locked in and we can't have that flexibility. So that's part of the nicest piece is that you have options and that flexibility of when you have that credit union relationship. Yeah. So it's not like you're, you're not like you're dealing with the Fannie or Freddie standards or, you know, any of the CMBS stuff that would eventually get packaged up and traded is pretty much. That's exactly right. You know, we always talk to people and say, you know, whose money are you actually borrowing? If it's, you know, Wall Street, you're kind of locked in, they're kind of locked in, but it's really part of the cooperatives money. So we have that flexibility to, to do what's right for you and rights for the organization. When it comes to real estate investors specifically, what types of real estate investors would be suitable to have a conversation with a, with a credit union? So it's really kind of a few different main buckets that we, that we live in. And sometimes that kind of starting at the bottom is maybe you've had that job for a while and you want to start dipping your toe into real estate investments. And you have that nice relationship where they've known you and you've known them for years. That's a good piece for us. Now, the other side of that is we deal with a lot of residential real estate investors, whether it's individual one to four family units, whether it's large multifamily units. You know, we deal with the people who need $100,000 up to the people who need 15 or $20 million. We also do a lot of commercial real estate. And then we also do quite a bit of small business financing. You know, one of the nice things about working with a credit union, maybe you're driving past your credit union and they're not the largest organization, but what my company is and what credit unions by nature, we're cooperative. So maybe your credit union only has, you know, two or three branches and individually they can't help you out with the biggest property, but the credit unions also work together quite well. Uh, much more than the commercial banking industry in bringing those deals 
uh, and working together to help fund and be cooperative with each other. Can you describe the current marketplace for lending to real estate investors and small businesses? That's been the, I, I just did a, a webinar to our credit union clients and, uh-huh. you know, we were predicting absolute Armageddon and every month we're setting record volume levels. Uh, you know, our, our delinquencies actually dropped since the beginning of the pandemic, which we're all stunned with, and it's been continuing to do well. We're really focusing on lending based off, you know, we, we do that historical look but you know that historical look isn't quite as relevant as it once was. We want to know what's happening today. We're seeing still a lot of strong financials in the multifamily space, in the residential space. And where we're seeing the most strength is outside of those major metro areas. You know, I live in suburban Philadelphia. You know, the outside of uh, the core urban center, the market's red hot. All throughout the second and third tier cities, the market's red hot. You know, obviously there's devastation in today's world in the restaurants and hospitality and tourism related things like that. But we're seeing a huge sector in that small businesses who've really boomed during this time. And unfortunately, the pandemic has really helped a lot of businesses. You know, you hate to see somebody grow during such difficult times, but it's really helped in kind of that two sector economy. Uh, you know, we're seeing the the PPP in the second round. Uh, we're seeing demand really drop off because you have to have a, a drop in your revenue. And a lot of small business America doesn't have that revenue drop to qualify. Yeah, yeah, we, we've seen a lot of that too. And it's very interesting. In the current environment, the COVID environment, lending environment, what are some potential issues or maybe pitfalls, mistakes that real estate investors should just be aware of when they're going up to get a loan? What we're seeing is rates are so low today that people are escalating the values and you really have very little wiggle room for errors. And that's the number one item that we're seeing is, you know, when you can borrow money in the threes, or, or a low 4%, you know, you're going to increase the cost, but maybe that income hasn't pushed up and those cap rates are getting narrower and narrower. And we get a little worried about the coverage because eventually there'll be a reset and things will normalize. Uh, you know, things that skyrocket up, uh, they tend to stabilize. Uh, you know, we're all seeing that in the Bitcoin price right now, <laughs> you know, it goes up and then it goes down quick. And, and so that's really what we're seeing in a lot of the multifamily and real estate investors. Uh, people are turning it into uh, uh, really an auction type atmosphere to acquire properties. Yeah, I think that's what we've been seeing here too. I know a few friends specifically on Long Island where I live who um, are trying to buy houses out here. And to your point earlier today, it's outside of the city. It's outside of New York City. It's like one of the suburban areas. And house prices are going up so quick and so fast that People can't buy anything. You know, they're getting outbid left and right, and it's just it's just insane to see. And then meanwhile, everything's going in the urban areas at a discount. <laughs> so it's it's very interesting. To we, see. My my wife and I uh, last summer we started trying to look to buy a home in the Poconos, and everybody from New York in the metro area was buying and bidding on property sight unseen. So we finally said, let's hold off, and we looked in some different markets where things are a little bit calmer. And it's one thing to have that property as your home, but it's another thing to skyrocket that up as a real estate investor 
where, you know, if it's a long, you know, you're going to be holding this property for five, seven, 10 years, what's that investment going to be like? And is it always going to be this red hot? Certainly something to be concerned about. I know we're going to get into PPP loans in just a second, but is there any particular like, you know, regions or demographic trends that you're seeing, you know, outside of the urban cores, like any specific regions that you're seeing that are super red hot or there might be opportunities to go into on the flip side of that, I guess? You know, we, we have a strong presence in the mid-Atlantic states, but we also work our way all the way down he- pretty heavily into the Southeast United States. And earlier in the year, uh, actually, it was the, in the fall, we did a hotel loan in Alabama. And I first thought we were crazy until I saw the numbers and did the research. And when I go down, you know, we see that consistent trend of growth and in income and property values with substantive income behind it in those southeastern states. And some of that is people like me hate the wintertime. So you get a lot of people moving down and people moving for the lower tax base that the southeastern states uh, move. But you're almost starting to see that equalization. You know, people move for the lower taxes, people moved because their work is now mobile and there's a lot of companies. But, you know, eventually that all levels out uh, in in the property values. And we're starting to see that. But it's still very good uh, economics. Yeah, no, I I kind of wish I, I'm kicking myself for not moving down to Florida or something like that earlier because I worked in the virtual environment for the last three years uh, as part of this firm. And, uh, you know, when COVID hit, nothing really changed for us, but it's just like for the rest of the world, everything changed. And now, you know, we had another another gentleman on our podcast a while back, uh, Brock Hollyman, for anybody who wants to check out that episode, who said that he was pre-selling houses that weren't even built yet in Florida to like New Yorkers, essentially like hotcakes. And it's just insane to see what's going on. And I'm sure at some point, you know, like you said, everything will equal out unless, you know, unless it already has. But we've been trying to get Tom to leave New York for three years. So (laughs) it's coming coming soon. I told my sister within the next year, I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, you might be battling uh, high prices and I guess low rates. That might be good. (laughs) The, The good news is. You know, for all our projections, low rates are going to be here for the next few years. We're not going to see declining rates, but they're going to be historically low for probably the next three years, if not more. And what makes you say that? Because they can't afford to raise them. The unemployment rate is too precarious to skyrocket rates, increase your cost of small businesses to do business, which is going to cause them to pull back on a lot of business-to-business investments. Hmm. You know, business-to-business investments to me and and employment rates really drive that future. And the Fed has really tagged that they're not going to just tie it to inflationary pressures. You know, it was always that one factor of, geez, if inflation gets above 2%, we have to drop rates. That's really been backtracked and with technology, you're seeing inflation down where, you know, we can really start to see that growth with low rates. Hmm. Why do you think that some small businesses have been so successful during the pandemic? It really just depends on that segment that you're in. You know, some businesses bet right. Hmm. And they just, you know, you'd like to think that they ran this small business. and, and But, you know, if you're an IT company, you're betting, you know, everybody wanted to buy laptops and virtualize the company and move, you know, we were virtual before this. So if you're an IT company, people boomed. 
But if you have the best fitness center in the America, you know, the odds are you're still struggling. Mm. So, and also I think you've seen a big rally around people wanting to support small businesses. We, we all see the Amazons and Targets and Lowe's and Home Depot doing wildly successful. And there's a much more conscious effort for people to buy small business and keep that support going. But for the most part, you know, the pandemic has changed the shopping patterns. It's changed some of the business cycles. It's changed how we work. So consumption is still strong. You know, last year, we had three vacations canceled. So that money with my wife and kids, you know, I'd like to think it was sitting in my bank account, but that money was just shifted to consuming other products. And that's the other piece that I think what happened last year is a lot of money was shifted to somebody purchased a pool for their house. And that money was shifted from some of the travel and tourism and service-oriented businesses that they used to do. Very insightful. One more question before maybe we jump right into the PPP loans. And that's, um, I guess you would say that, you know, buying a business in this type of environment, depending, I guess, on what type of business you want to buy, would not be the worst idea right now. The government, with the recent legislative changes, the government has done everything but walk in the door and give money to credit unions to help them people open up businesses. You know, a lot of new businesses and opportunities, they're financed through the SBA, where we can now, as a lender, get a 90% guarantee with absolutely no fees to us and no fees to the businesses to help you expand your business, to help you start a business, or you know, maybe it's just was going and you want to help grow it. So we're being wildly incented, some almost a little too far. Uh, you know, because you don't, you know, not everything's going to hit, but, you know, we have 90% guarantees to help businesses recover, to help them grow and to drive small business America. And the nice thing is working with credit unions, we're much more in touch with our community where we're lending where our branches are and where our members are and where our presence is. So it feels good and it's good to know that, you know, you're helping out and you're lending in your community and helping the local folks out. That's good to hear. That's definitely good to hear. And, and we, we know, you know, shifting now to the PPP side of things, we know last year for in COVID, when COVID-19 first hit, PPP loans were opened up to everybody and you were pretty much able to get loans to cover you know, your mortgage, your utilities, payroll through a certain period of time. And then eventually it's going to be forgiven. And I, from last time I checked, uh, that's still in process with a lot of banks. Um, I guess my question to you is, wh- where are we today with PPP loans? What is the state of that initiative today? Sure. I always tell people, one of these days, I need to sit down with a screenwriter and write a movie about the PPP program, because it was the craziest time in my life and with anybody. It, it, it was... I have never seen programs change multiple times in a day through the federal government and the volume and the calls that we had and the stories we had. And we did we did several thousand and a couple hundred million in PPP loans through the credit unions that we work with. So everybody has these forgivable loans. And at first it was, you know, if, if you think back in time, it was eight weeks and then you were, these loans were going to be forgiven and the pandemic was over. Obviously, that didn't happen. So they kept extending it and extending it. 
So where the current status of the PPP program is, it's actually just this week as we record this, the SBA has issued a new form for lenders where for any PPP loan under $150,000, you have to fill out a one-page form and get it back to your lender and it'll be forgiven. And really, that's about 95% of the PPP loans in America. For the PPP loans over $150,000, you got to do a little work. There is a form. It's more simplified. But you're also going to have to document how you spent the money. Now, for the larger loans, if you got a million-dollar-plus loan from the SBA, now, when we submit those and process those loans, we're seeing those loans flagged and they're digging into them a little bit more. But for 95% of your people who, who probably have that PPP loan under 150000 wait, don't panic because you actually have until this October to start up this process. So you have plenty of time. Don't worry about it. There's a one-page form. You can fill it out. You can get it to your lender and you don't have to provide them anything. We had a lot of people who were really panicked saying, I want to get it forgiven. I want to give it forgiven. But the best answer was wait. Well, now they have put it out. We're waiting a few weeks because we're actually helping everybody out in the second advance of PPP. Now, demand for this second advance is probably 25% of what it was the first time around. And it's a much calmer process. There's plenty of money. If you qualify, you know, you have to show that sales reduction but if you do qualify for that, uh, where you have to show it for annual uh, 2019 to 2020, a sales drop, or a quarter over one, any quarter over quarter from 2019 to 2020 sales reduction, and you can qualify for the loan. But there's plenty of money. The program goes through the end of March. Yeah, I remember when the first when the CARES Act came out and that first round of PPP went out and then it seemed like every Friday around like 7 p.m. Eastern, Treasury would drop, Treasury and SBA would drop more FAQs <laughs> right after we had all signed off for the weekend here. And then I, I remember I spent so many weekends reading the new FAQs and trying to translate that for our clients and try to figure out, okay, who who's now eligible Okay, what does the certification mean? Okay, now the certification doesn't matter. Like, it's just like a lot, a lot of changes. And I saw, I saw in this latest bill that they gave, I believe it was SBA and Treasury, they gave them so eight days or something to put their FAQs out. And then it was after that, it was just final. Is that is that true? Yes. So everything is final now. You know, the nice thing about this program is yeah, it was passed at the end of December but they've really had it in place since August. It, it wasn't the, sh you know, last year they passed the law in the middle of March and they were literally making it up as they went along. Yeah. Now they've had all, they, they actually had, for, for all the problems of Congress, everybody in Congress agreed to this program months ago. So they had everything queued up as compared to last time. And the nicest part of it is the systems work. We can actually get in and process loans, whereas last time that was the hardest problem is, is systems crashing. But you know, this time around, the SBA and Treasury have been great to work with. Their communication has been great. The program really hasn't changed, and it's really minor clarifications. 
That's nice. What do they What do they end up doing with the agent application fees? Because I know a lot. I'm in, I'm in all these like CPA groups, and there are a bunch of CPAs that were all up in arms that the banks were going to pay them agent fees, and we we never even tried because I just felt that that was going to be a a long long stretch. But I know that there was something in the bill recently, right, about agent fees. That was actually a uh, quite a, a bit, and and there was actually people who were processing PPP loans turning them into lenders and saying, well, you owe me an agent fee. And that's not what it was designed for at all. So in this last one, they actually clarified that the bank is only paying and responsible to pay an agent fee if there's a pre-existing contractual relationship. Yeah. That's what made sense to me. And I, I, <laughs> I'm in this CPA group where they were all immediately jumping on it and they were like, we're going to get these PPP loans, these agent fees. And I was kind of like reading the language and I was like, yeah, but I, I don't think that submitting an application to a bank creates an agency relationship. You'd have to have some sort of, at least it made sense to me, you'd have to have some sort of like agreement to to document that agency relationship. So I mean, we, we, we submitted a couple, but I'd never even tried because I was just like, it's not even not worth arguing about. But yeah, that, that's good to good to hear. That's that's what it actually was. <laughs> that's actually now most of our credit unions, we actually contracted and we were their back office shop processing all of those. So we received agent fees for that because we were actually doing this on behalf of the lender. That makes sense. That makes sense. Switching gears a little bit and actually kind of bubbling up the beginning of this process. You talked about how credit unions, you can build a relationship with real estate investors. Is there a way to quantify over the amount of time, over like a decade or two, how valuable that is to a real estate investor? And let me give you a quick rundown. You know, my so my business, we recently went and snagged the line of credit. And because I, I I have a business coach, and my business coach took one look at our balance sheet and was like, you need to move all your cash out of the business and you need to get a line of credit. Uh, so different sort of mindset. And this guy's like built this huge, huge company. So I was like, okay, so we're going to get a line of credit to float us if we ever need to be floated, which I don't think that we do, but just in case. But picking a banking relationship was, it was, it was a relatively intense experience. I mean, I, I mean, it was really nice, really relationship-based, but I, I almost felt like I was breaking up with one person to get the other person but I also feel like I can go back to that person now for everything, even like home loans. And I guess what I'm really asking here is like, if somebody at a credit union compared to a bigger bank builds a strong track record of on-time payments, financially stable, how valuable is that to the real estate investor at the end of the day? Sure. The one nice, and, and I always say people tend to look at their banks like restaurants, they should look at it more like a restaurant. If I go to Ruth's, Chris, and Morton's, I'm expecting something different than McDonald's. But people walk into banks and credit unions and think they are all this homogenous businesses when they're not. And you really need to find that fit for your culture. If you're a large, large commercial real estate investor, almost that Wall Street middle market type person, I'm not for you because the only thing you really care about is where's my cheapest cost of goods. If you're somebody who has a family and a home and a business and you want a car loan and you want electronic services and you want that all around experience, that's where the credit union is best and easiest. And one of the things is credit unions tend to have a lot of stability. If you look, drive up and down your bank, 
your street and see how many banks are the same branch and name as 10 to 15 years ago. It's usually not that many, but a credit union, they they tend not to merge and, and jump around as much as a bank. So when you really need something, that's when that value is in. You know, there's certain people who can get any product they want anytime they want. And those are easy. You know, everybody wants them. It's when you want to grow your business or you want to do something out of the norm, that's where the value is. So yes. when you have that bump in the road or, you know, maybe you're buying a home or you're moving, that's where that value of the relationship is. Yeah, it was it was really interesting talking about doing things a little bit outside the norm because when, when I got the line of credit for our business, you know, we're an accounting firm and we don't we don't have receivables. Uh, we we collect a lot of payments up front, and we typically collect at the time of billing. So our receivable balances are very low. So there's not a whole lot of collateral to lend against. But we were able to get creative with one of the bankers and get the deal done. And it made me it made me feel good because of exactly like you said. I mean, if I would have called up Bank of America, they would have said, "Yeah, no way, get out of here." But finding somebody smaller, local, and small. I mean, the, the bank that I'm working with is a billion dollars in assets, so smaller but not you know tiny. Uh, and to your point, stable. And I just I got excited because I was like, okay, cool. So I can I can do all my future lending through these guys, build a good relationship over time. But one thing that I didn't know is just just how valuable is that? I've got to imagine it is valuable. You can get a little more creative because you've built a relationship. But I just I just didn't know. Yeah, you you really need that certainty. You know, it's always nice to know you can get the money this time. But it's more about knowing that you have good options for the next time around, that you can have that comfort level for as your business changes. Uh, You know, if business exploded and you need to hire 12 people right away and you need the money for that, that they'll be there for you. That's where that true business relationship and that banking relationship matters. And my, my other business coach told me that his banker is his most important relationship, most important business relationship. And that that's what started this whole thing. Because I was like, really? Why, why would a banker be an important business relationship? And just so happened about the same time, the other business coach was like, you need to get a line of credit. And then now I get it. Now I get it. But it was, it was, it was interesting hearing him say that. I'm convinced that if I went to work for a large bank, I'd probably get uh, fired probably within the first week. Because I tend to want to have those more in-depth conversations with people and worried about the, okay, what's it going to be like two to three years from now? Then, you know, what can I put down your throat today for a product or service? It's fair. That's fair. I mean, most service businesses, you know, should probably think that way too, because it's not about today. It's not just about today, excuse me. It's, it's, about, it's about the long term. And that's, that's some key successful business right there. Shifting gears just one more time, and I think we're coming up to the end of the line here a little bit. But, you know, you know working with a lot of real estate investors, what are the biggest tax strategies you see the, the investors uh, implementing, if any, on your end? Uh, no, we, we really see people who focus on, you know, where's the location and understanding what they're getting into as far as a tax liability. You know, where do they live? What's the locality like? What are the local taxes like? You know, here in Pennsylvania, real estate taxes, uh, and much like New York, it, it is, is really strong. You know, a little bit more higher up, we see people, you know, allocating costs and segmenting costs on their projects to accelerate the depreciation schedules. But a lot of the people we work with are much more concerned about kind of that, either that month-to-month cash flow and, and kind of building that program 
more than the multimillionaire tax strategy. So we see a little bit of that, but most people, you know, they kind of manage it. They watch the expenses and they're not, they focus on that cash flow and really keep where they're at. And it's much more about the location where they are than anything else in, in terms of Florida versus New York, as you know. Yeah. And that, you know, that's interesting, you know, not many people come on the podcast and talk about that aspect of it. You know, taxes, there's definitely a local level to it. Depending on what state you live in, you might have higher taxes than another state, or you might not have no taxes, depending on what state you're in. And also there's the local level. I know, like, for example, you know, just to bring up New York City, there's a 3.8% city tax. So just if you live within New York City, you not only have the federal tax, you have the state tax, and then you have the city tax on top of that, which is just driving people out. And, you know, in California, you have uh, all these franchise taxes on businesses. So definitely to your point, it's not just about the tax strategies you can apply to any particular property you own or, you know, whether it's on the entrance or the exit. But it's also looking at you know the environment in which you're working in and seeing how that's going to impact your tax is at the end of the day too. Exactly. So you know, Mark, it's been great having you on today. I know you know we learned a lot on this specific episode about credit unions and why why people need to have banking relationships and the importance of that, as well as the PPP loan. Um, I think we kind of just demystified a lot of things there for people. If our listeners wanted to learn more about you, what you have going on, maybe they wanted to connect with you, what would be the best uh, way for them to do so? Sure. We're very active on LinkedIn, member business financial services, and me, Mark Ritter. Uh, we connect with a lot of real estate investors on there and or our website, mbfs.org. And if we don't have a credit union that we work with directly in your area, we have relationships with hundreds of credit unions across the area that we can connect you with. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to drop that into the show notes for everybody who is listening. Um, just want to thank you again, Mark, for coming on. Thank so. you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.